Hi, you're listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life with me, your host, Mimi Novik. I'm so happy and thrilled to have you here with me. I have created this series for all of us so we can change our world together and live a more holistic and balanced life. Together, we will share lots of inspiring stories from all walks of life, speak with leading experts, enjoy healthy living ideas, explore music and subjects that inspire each other to always have hope. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Secrets for an Inspirational Life. How are you all today? I hope that you are well. I hope that life is treating you well and that the people around you are people always who make your heart sing. Now, that is not an easy thing by any means. But personally speaking, and I'm sure for all of you out there, we can all understand that when we are with people that do not give us peace, that we do not feel that we can be ourselves with, life becomes more difficult. Sometimes all we need to do is to let go of the situations and the people that are bringing us this unrest. Deep down in our souls, we all recognize that what brings us peace is that that brings an equilibrium to our lives. And that is something from very deep within us. Life, as they say, is far too short to spend with those that don't respect us. And I hope that all of us, equally and in unison, will always have enough respect for ourselves to be around the people that respect us. Now, I am absolutely delighted to welcome my guest today, who is Scott Harvey, all the way from the United States. Scott is a former FBI trained hostage negotiator. He is also a highly sought after speaker, coach and business consultant who helps individuals and companies communicate through any situation. Since launching the Speaking of Harvey podcast, he has had the opportunity to speak and train people around the globe. He is also the author of the book, Silence Kills. As a trained hostage negotiator, for over 20 years, Scott built a career on his ability to communicate his way through any crisis, which has helped him to write this very informative book. In Silence Kills, he demonstrates how simple but not easy it is to communicate through daily crises in any situation. Today, he shares his journey. Welcome, dear Scott. Thank you so much, Mimi. I'm super excited to be here. I, I listen. I am extra super excited for you to be here and welcome to you, dear Scott. I am honoured that you are here and that you have graced us with your company all the way from the United States. Well, I am, I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, me too. Me too. Now, you are a very, very interesting person and there's so many things that you do. But it's actually, I, I said, I spoke to Scott earlier and I said to him, so many people I have told about um, him and what he does and his book and everything, that they are even excited. I think I've sold the whole thing really well because they're already excited and they haven't even listened to you, Scott. I love it. We will try our best to live up to the hype. <laughs> now, so many things you do. And so many things you've done. 
but we've got to start somewhere. So from the beginning, a little bit, a little bit about your life and how you got in to, I suppose, being trained as a hostage negotiator, a public information officer. Let's begin there. Where did it all start? So I kind of knew as a kid that I wanted to be a police officer. As a teenager, I worked a lot of different jobs. Some of them were in the food service world. Some of them were behind a desk. And I just kind of figured out along the way what I didn't want to do. None of them really kind of struck a chord with me. But I always knew I wanted to help people. And so I got into the program to to become a police officer in college, really. I studied law enforcement in college, even though in the U.S. you're not required to have a degree, at least for the agency I worked for. You couldn't start the police department until you were 21. You graduate high school at 18. I figured I had three years to kill. I might as well get a degree. So I did. I minored in Spanish because where I worked, that helped me a lot on the street. Uh, talked to our Hispanic population. So Came out of college, applied at the police department, got hired on, and I spent about three years on patrol, two to three years before that kind of started getting old. Let me explain what I mean by that. As a police officer, we are called as part of the cleanup, meaning most of the time the tragedy has already occurred. The cars have crashed into each other. The people have gotten hurt. The person has been killed. What We are called to kind of put things back together again. And I realized that was difficult, expensive, and you never really got back to how things were before the tragedy. So I started looking for ways to kind of get upstream of the problem, to get, uh, yeah, we have all these things coming down to us that are issues, but I wanted to get up and start preventing some of those things. So I applied for a D.A.R.E. position, and, and D.A.R.E. for us in the States is a drug abuse prevention program in the schools. And basically what I did is I went in and I taught fifth graders and seventh graders, so 10 and 13-year-olds, ways to make better decisions. Uh, and I got into that because I wanted to kind of get upstream of the problem that I talked about earlier. And about the same time, a position came open on our hostage negotiation team. And I have never been a guy that just loves to go out and shoot guns. You may find that surprising as a police officer, but I did it because it was part of my job. I had zero interest in our SWAT team, but the hostage negotiation team intrigued me because if I did my job as a negotiator well, nobody got hurt, crimes were stopped from being committed, and we worked it out in a peaceful way. And maybe it goes back to my childhood, Mimi. I was the middle of three boys. So as the middle child, I was the peacekeeper. Like my older brother, my younger brother, neither one of them have ever been wrong a day in their life. And I just you know, worked the deals between the two of them. Like we would come to agreements, we would get things worked out. So I guess that's just always been my mindset. And I worked at the police department for 20 years. And I knew when I signed in at 23 years old, that at the time, it was a 20-year retirement. I could retire at 20. I wasn't required to. But around 2010, I started in 98. Around 2010, I started speaking at conferences that I was already attending. And I started to do it enough that I really, really enjoyed it. I started going to schools and doing school assemblies. And I realized I had eight years left in this job. This could be the retirement job. This could be what I did at 43 when I retired. So I started building the speaking business and I built that to a point where when 2018 rolled around and I was eligible to retire, I could step into my existing company and transition into full-time speaking. And at that time, I added coaching, mastermind facilitation, the podcast, lots of different ways that I could come up with to help people. Uh, I had built a career based on my ability to communicate, and I wanted to help people do that as well. And last year, it occurred to me that I can only speak on so many stages. I can only be in so many places at once. Speaking is a great job, but it's hard to scale it because I can't be everywhere at once. So I wrote this book to give information to the people without me having to travel. I still want to come and travel if I can, but obviously more people can read the book that can bring me in to speak. So the book is a way to kind of say, here's here's what I teach people. Read this book. You're going to find it helpful. And if it makes sense for you to bring me in, 
contact me and we'll talk about what that looks like. So that's kind of my last 25 years in about three to five minutes. Was that what you were looking for, Mimi? Well, that was very informative, I have to say. Good. Um, Very good. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what comes across is this fantastic ability of yours, even as you speak, that the art of communication, which is a very, very rare art form these days. And what's interesting is this title of yours of Silence Kills. It's a very, very dramatical title. It's, it's, it's hugely provocative as well in many ways. And when I first saw it, it actually made me feel a little afraid. Mm. Now, when you say the wrong words, it can be dangerous, mm-hmm. of course. When you don't say the right words, it can be dangerous. Or if you're silent, it can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. But you're the expert in this field. How do we even begin to learn this art form? And why does silence kill? What is this? um, Explain a little bit about this, because I find this absolutely fascinating. Sure. I love the feedback on the title because the title of a book is to encourage people to read the subtitle. And the subtitle here is Communication Tactics to Speak with Confidence and Build Your Influence. And then hopefully that builds up enough intrigue that people will flip it over, read the back, and then the back gets them to read the rest of the book. That's kind of the progression. And the reason I chose the title Silence Kills is because, you know, I... I spent a career having very high stress, very high stakes communication. And so even in my work with students, you just never knew what the students were going to ask, what they were dealing with, what was going on in their world. Like it was, it was difficult communication because our students are dealing with a lot today that we don't fully understand, especially in the world of social media. It was all high stress communication. And so there was nothing I wouldn't talk about. If a kid wanted to talk about abuse at home or something like that, we will talk about that. We will get you help. If uh, somebody that I was negotiating with wanted to talk about prior abuse they had experienced as a child, we'll talk about that because those are some of the things that we end up talking about. So there wasn't anything I was uncomfortable talking about. And as I got into the corporate space and as I started working with clients there, I heard them say things like, well, we can't talk about that. And it bothered me. And we went through a time a couple of years ago here in the U.S. of, of racial unrest uh, after the George Floyd murder, the Ahmaud Arbery murder. And people can research those if they're not from here. It was a, uh, a time of racial unrest. And what bothered me the most is people were saying, well, that's just something we don't really talk about. And that bothered me, Mimi. And so I went and found my good friends, my close friends who had a different experience than me, people who had a different skin color than me. And I said, I want to sit down and I want to have a conversation with you because I want to see this from your eyes. And they they told me, they said, listen, Scott, we've never been a police officer. We'd love to talk to you and get it from your eyes and see if we can come to some kind of a way that we understand each other better. And those conversations, Mimi, are still this day, some of my favorite conversations I've had in the last five years. They were difficult. They were heavy. But we both learned something about the other at the end. Now, the only people offended by those conversations were my white friends who told me that it was rude of me to have conversations with my black friends about this topic. And and I, I, I got bothered by that because I said, who are you talking to? They said, well, this is a difficult topic. We're not really talking to anybody. Well, therein lies the problem. I We can't solve a problem that we can't talk about. And in the business world, there are times where we maybe have a product that fails. Maybe we have an employee that's done something we don't want him to do, and we shut down communication. The problem with that is you don't kill the story when you shut down communication. All you do is encourage people to come up with their own story. So if it's a team member who's done something they shouldn't do, other people on your team know this. And they will start spinning a story that you may never get control of again. Or if you've had a product that's failed or somebody came to your place of business and got hurt and you say nothing about this incident, 
people will start talking and they will start filling in the blanks that you have left with much worse stories than what's actually happening. So silence without rapport just feels like we don't care every time. If you are silent with me and we don't have a relationship that supports that silence, I'm going to interpret it as you don't care. If I send you a text message or an email, let's say you're my supervisor and you don't email or text me back, I'm going to start thinking, "What am I going to be fired? What's going on? Why is there no communication? And I will start finding all of the things to make that true, even though you may just have forgotten to text me or call me back. I'll start finding the things that make this this conspiracy theory make sense in my head because my brain has to make sense of the situation. And if you're silent, I automatically feel like it's something is wrong. It feels like a threat and that engages the lizard brain and the lizard brain is fight or flight. And so I'm either preparing to run or preparing to fight because I feel threatened by your silence when I feel like it's a situation you should be talking about. And do you feel that that is also something in day-to-day relationships, family, friends? Because as you're speaking, it's very familiar where so many things, it's a strange one. Mm -hmm. Hold that thought because Mm -hmm. in some way the world has gone into a mode of too much information Mm -hmm. and on the other side of the coin it i feel that it has gone into you are not allowed to say what you want to say correct yes so it's gone between utter sort of hedonistic freedom to total oppression yeah Where can one find the balance in this to keep sane? That's a great question. I I don't fault people for shutting down communication because it's not evil on their part. The reason they do it is they're genuinely afraid they'll say the wrong thing. Because we live in a very cancel culture world where if you say the wrong thing, then you're blasted on social media and it just blows up and... And it becomes very, very difficult. So because people are afraid of being canceled or saying something offensive today, they say nothing because those lines are moved all the time where what we find offensive today is going to be different tomorrow. That's a line that we will never nail down. And it's offensive to different people for different reasons. So in an effort to not offend, people shut down communication, which to me is potentially more offensive. Because it just feels like you don't care. And I could much rather defend your misspeaking than your non-speaking. Because if we're having a conversation and, and you and I are friends or you and I are family members and you say something offensive to me or that I take offense to, I'm probably going to say something. But if you don't have any conversation with me at all, that bothers me more. I would much rather correct you and say, here's what I heard you say. And when I say it back to you, give you the chance to clarify or correct what you said so that we both understand what you're trying to say, then have you say nothing at all to me because I can't correct that. And it just feels like even at a family function, I mean, we came out of the holidays not too long ago. There were family members that we didn't have conversations with because maybe we know they're on the opposite political spectrum at us as us. They have different religious beliefs than us, all of these hot button issues. And we had zero conversations with them. Well, that makes it easier for them to dismiss us because they feel like we weren't talking to them. We can dismiss them because they didn't even try to talk to us. And it just snowballs from there where if you want to have these conversations with people and not offend The easiest way to do that is to keep them talking. Let them carry the conversation. Ask them questions. Ask questions to understand, not to get your point across. Because that's what I did with my friends during the racial unrest of 2020. I I asked them questions about their growing up, about how they saw these situations. And I said very little, honestly. And I learned so much about their perspectives. We may not have agreed on everything, but we both left those conversations knowing each other a lot better. 
because we just focused on our perspectives because between each person's perspective is the truth. Absolutely. My friend always used to say, there's your version and my version and there's the truth. Yes. Um, And I find that very poignant. And especially there's one thing about the back of your book, because I've seen um, the back cover copy that you sent to me. And there's a line there that you speak about. And um, I'm going to read it. They're your words. Letting others control the narrative can be riskier, okay, where you talk about in a culture where anything can be the wrong thing to to say. So speaking up feels risky. And then there is a very powerful line that you write. In a world held hostage by fear, silence feels safe. Mm-hmm. That is such a powerful line, Scott. And I think in a single sentence there, you explain so many things of what is actually wrong with this world. But we are, in effect, held hostage by fear in itself. How do we work our way through that, whether that be in business? But let's talk about day-to-day situations. Mm -hmm. If you are so afraid, from whatever reason, whether that be the situation you're in through family or partners or friends, fear is completely paralyzing. Mm -hmm. Where do you start in a situation like that? Well, let me let me illustrate the fear that the best way I know how I I'm not very outdoorsy, Mimi, like I don't camp and hike and stuff like that because there's no air conditioning outside. That's my issue with the outdoors. There's no air conditioning. <laughs> but I went several years ago. My wife and I took our youngest daughter kayaking. And this is going to feel like a story out of left field, but it'll make sense here in a minute. We took her kayaking because she was 13 at the time, and we were looking for some way to get her face out of her phone for at least an hour or so. All the people who are listening who have teenagers understand exactly what I'm talking about. So we were going to go kayaking. I've never been kayaking before, but I'm a guy. I fake things all the time. I'm like, sure, we'll go kayaking. It's not that hard. So we grabbed my brother-in-law's gear. We each got in our own kayak. We're getting ready to get in the creek and and it's the water's rushing pretty fast because it's after a storm here in Kentucky where I live. And and my brother-in-law says, listen, there's a time in the creek where there's one tree coming across from one side, another tree coming across from the other bank, but it's okay. My wife and I go around it all the time. Now, I didn't know what that meant, but I thought, no big deal. It's kayaking. How hard can it be? So we get to the point where he's describing these trees. It's exactly like he described them. And I see a kayak-sized hole in between the two trees. And I thought, go around them. I found out later going around them means paddle to the shore, get out, carry the kayak around the trees and get in the other side. That would have been important to know, but I didn't know that. So my wife goes first. She makes a couple of turns, makes it through the hole between the two trees like a pro. My 13-year-old goes next. And I'm about 30 yards behind her when she starts her first turn. The water's rushing super fast and she miscalculates the turn at 13 and she slams sideways against the first tree. And if you've ever been kayaking, you've seen water go around obstacles in the creek. You know what happens next. Her boat and she curled underneath the tree and disappeared under the water. I jump out of my boat. I start running to where she last went under. Her boat pops out the other side of the tree but she doesn't. And so now I'm in a panic and I'm running towards the tree and I get about 10 yards from it. And I see just her elbow sticking out from around the tree branch. And then her face comes up for a breath and then her head disappears underwater again. All I see is her elbow. And I get right behind her, thankfully, because the creek was rushing so fast that if I missed If I didn't get behind her, I don't think I could have fought the current to get back to her. I reached under the tree, grabbed a hold of her jacket, and pulled with everything I had. And she came out. And when she did, Mimi, she's coughing. Water is pouring out of her mouth. And when that stops, after a few seconds, she just starts crying. 
And she looks at me as we're standing up and I get my boat. It floats up next to me at the time. I put her in the boat and she looks at me at 13. She goes, I just kept telling myself, daddy's coming. And that really bothered me because she knows I'm not outdoorsy. She knows this is not in my wheelhouse, but she also knows there's not a ditch in the world deep enough to keep me out of it as she's in the bottom. I've told her that since she was a kid and she knew I would do everything I can to save her. We got back in the boat. We finished the trip without incident. But when I got back home, here's where this makes sense. I couldn't help thinking about the only reason she was ever in danger is because when her world turned upside down, she grabbed a hold of the first safe thing she could find, and that was the tree. It felt safe. It felt strong. It felt like it could support her. And when she grabbed a hold of that, the waist-deep water pushed her feet out from underneath her so strong that she couldn't put them back under her. And so she sat there holding on with everything she had, struggling to breathe. If she would have let go of the tree, she would have washed underneath the tree, come out the other side, and been able to stand up. The reason I say that is when our world turns upside down, Mimi, when it hits the fan, we grab on to the first safe thing we can find. And a lot of times that's silence. We're in the middle of a global mental health crisis right now as we come out of this global pandemic because we've never pandemic before. And this was hard on us. And people are not talking about it because it feels safer to say nothing. But the thing that they've grabbed a hold of, that silence that feels safe, is what's keeping them stuck. And that's what's making it hard to breathe. Where if you let go of that silence, let go of that feeling of this is what's keeping me safe, the current will wash you down to a point where you can stand up and then you can start addressing the issue. We just, in a panic, we grab a hold of what feels safe and we just won't let go. And it doesn't matter how hard it is to breathe, we just hang on. So how do you start these conversations with people in your family or your friends that are going to be awkward? I recommend people just call it out. Just sit with the person and sometimes not face-to-face. Sometimes we think I'm going to go out and get a cup of coffee with them or I'm going to go and have a drink or whatever and we're going to sit across and we're going to talk. Sometimes that's more awkward. Sometimes it's easier shoulder to shoulder. So maybe you say, hey, let's go for a drive because shoulder to shoulder, we don't have to look at each other. And that's easier to have difficult conversations sometimes when we don't look at each other. That was the tr- the case for my two girls when they were growing up. If we had difficult conversations we had to have, I told, I told them, let's get in the car. Let's go for a drive. Because then they didn't have to look at me as I'm talking about sensitive topics. They could formulate their responses without the awkwardness of looking at dad. And then I would just tell them, this is going to be a hard conversation, right? This is going to be awkward. I'll just call it out in the beginning. But this is something on the other side of it. We're going to be better because we had this conversation. So if I say anything or do anything that makes this weird or I say something I shouldn't say, please let me know. I'm not trying to offend. Just trying to talk about something I believe will make us both better. If you call it out in the beginning, say this is going to be awkward, but it's going to make us better. In my experience, people are more than willing to have those conversations. It's very good advice. Absolutely. But sometimes people are not responsive. And I always wonder, how do you prepare yourself for a situation where people don't want to talk anymore? Mm -hmm. And as you said, this whole global mental health problem that's really, um, it's in, It's caused incredible issues and people have been silenced in this deep, deep sense of insecurity, this deep sense of, I suppose, hopelessness. How do you get over that? How can you bring that silence into an arena? where people feel safe again to talk, to express how they feel. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I tell people all the time, I coached high school volleyball for girls for five years. And I always told the girls before every game, I'm like, we don't control the outcome. We control our effort. At the end of this match, if you have given all of your effort and we don't win the match, 
I'm okay with that. You control your effort. And so in this conversation, we don't get to control whether the other person is receptive or not. We just want to go into this conversation knowing we were open to having the conversation. And if they shut it down, I tell my daughters when they contact a teacher about a grade or my oldest daughter's an interior designer and she has talked to a client, sent three or four emails and they haven't emailed her back. I'm like, listen, you've done what you can do. You've put the effort out. You can't be responsible for them not communicating back to you. But if this fails, it's not going to be because you didn't try. If we're silent, 100% it's going to fail. If we at least try to have these conversations and they shut it down, we can at least say, listen, I tried. And I never let somebody completely shut a conversation down. Because I, I say in the book, and I tell people all the time, if it's a difficult, uncomfortable conversation, you need to be in the same room with them. You know, you don't have to be face to face, be shoulder to shoulder or something, but make every effort to be in the same room. If you can't do that, do it over video where you can read their verbal, uh, their nonverbal expressions, because there's a lot there. Because if their verbal response disagrees with what you see nonverbally, then the truth is really in the nonverbals. This is why you'll ask somebody, hey, how are you doing today? Is everything good? And they're like, it's fine. I mean, their words said fine, but their tone said it's anything but fine, which some people are like, oh, great. So glad you're having a good day. And they go on and they miss a problem where if you're intuitive and you pick up on these nonverbal cues, you're like, really, it doesn't sound fine. What's going on? What can I help with? What is the, what can I do to help today? That's my favorite question. How can I help? It's one of my favorite questions because maybe they're overloaded. Maybe I've given them stuff to do that they just are not capable of doing, and they're frustrated by that. I might even say, you look frustrated. What's going on? So that I can at least get them to start talking. And if they completely dismiss me and they will not have this conversation, I'll tell them, listen, things are stressful around here. I've been stressed myself. We do funny things when we're under stress. If you need to talk about anything, you come let me know. You write me an email. You send me a voicemail. You do whatever. I want to help you, but I can't help you solve a problem I don't know anything about. And then I would just leave it. And then I would touch base with them later the next day or something and say, hey, how's today? Is today any better than yesterday? If it's not getting better, let me know. Because then at least you're letting them know you know there's an issue. They're not ready to talk about it yet. My wife and I had to figure this out the first few years of our marriage. We've been married over 25 years And it took me several years to figure out my wife is very introverted. I'm very extroverted. I am an outside processor. I think things out loud all the time. My wife does not. When she's upset about something, she gets very, very quiet. And a lot of times early on in our marriage, I thought that meant I did something wrong because somehow I thought her happiness was 100% my, my area. And sometimes work just stressed her out. I had nothing to do with it. But when she became silent... I would sometimes ask her, hey, is it me? And she's like, no, it's not you. Cool. Now I can support her in a different way. I'm not thinking about what did I do? What didn't I do? What day is today? What did I miss? All of that stuff leaves my mind. And I'm just there to support her when she's ready to talk. And if I sit with her in the silence long enough, sometimes she'll just say, I had a really rough day at work. Hey, we're making progress. Right, we I sat there in the silence long enough for her to start that conversation. Now, that's easy because we have a rapport established. Remember what I said, silence without rapport feels like we don't care. If this is a coworker that you've never had more than a two or three sentence conversation with, that silence isn't going to be supported as long. They're not going to tolerate that silence for long because they don't feel like they have a relationship with you adequate enough to support that silence, which is why I tell companies, When you have an issue, you need to be talking because your people do not have a relationship with you strong enough to support that silence for long. But if you're in close relationship with a family member, a kid, a spouse or something, sometimes you can be silent together for an hour and neither one of you is worried that the other one's mad because you have thousands and thousands of hours of rapport building behind you that is now supporting the weight of this comfortable silence. Does that kind of answer what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And as you were speaking, I'm thinking, 
is this something, Scott, this ability that you have, which is also um, a compassion for people? Because even as you said, how can I help you? This is all to do with caring about the other person. And is this something that comes naturally to you? Or is this something that you had to learn? That's a really good question. And I I feel like it came naturally to me, Mimi, but I don't want to say that definitively because there are some people who are going to hear that and say, well, I'm just not a compassionate person. And they're going to see that as an excuse to move on with their life. And I feel like one of the reasons I teach this to organizations is communication tactics are tactics that can be learned. When somebody came to us at the police department, we had some people apply who had never fired a gun in their life. Awesome. We will teach you that. We are going to hire for character and we are going to teach you the skills you need. So we are going to hire the most compassionate, the most outgoing, the most um, ability to listen to people that we can. And then we're going to train you the skills you need. I feel like I was born this way as far as caring about other people. But I also feel like because I felt that way, I have found all the times in my life to make, to exercise that muscle, to make that a thing that I just do. When I'm coaching clients, it's about what their needs are and it facilitate the mastermind. We will focus on different people at different times. And sometimes I have a plan when I come to that mastermind call and then somebody logs into the call and it's clear to everybody, they need our attention today. So we will shift 100% of our efforts to helping them solve their problem. It's just something that I feel like I was kind of made to do. And when we're functioning in our sweet spots, that's when we can help the most people. If you are not a super compassionate person, then look at this from a business standpoint. If you are a team leader, your people are not going to be productive if they don't feel like they're connected with you. We do business with people we like, know, and trust. So if you are not a super compassionate person, you still owe it to your team to invest in them enough that they will like, know, and trust you because that builds a loyalty, that builds a safe place for them to not be okay if they're not okay. If it's not a safe place and they're not okay, they will just withdraw. They'll be less productive. They'll find a different place to work. They'll leave your team and now you're training somebody else. You've lost productivity. So there's a lot of benefits of taking care of people. And that sounds manipulative. It's not meant to be. But if you're just not super compassionate wired, there are still ways that this pays off for you if you are building and investing in your people. Now, you have been through many things in your work and have seen many things. And something that interests me, especially in all of this, is the part where you were a hostage negotiator. That's something that seems incredibly important and incredibly difficult. Tell us what you can, if you can, a little bit, Scott, about that part of your life. Yeah, I, as I said very early on in our conversation, I got involved in that as another way of helping people because I didn't want people to uh, feel like they didn't have an alternative. You know, a lot of times we called it hostage negotiation, but a truer label was really crisis negotiator because sometimes there wasn't a hostage. Sometimes it was just somebody who was suicidal and has barricaded themselves in their house. They're wanting to kill themselves or they're wanting the police to kill them. And we end up talking to him on the phone. So there's no true hostage, but there's always a crisis. And so we, I got involved as a crisis negotiator, hostage negotiator, in order to kind of help these people get the help they need. Because they're looking at a potential permanent solution to a very temporary problem. And I realized that under the stress of the situation, they're not seeing that clearly. Because I don't know about you, Mimi, but under stress and under high emotion, I make really bad choices. And Absolutely. a lot of times the next day, I'm trying to justify 
the emotional decision that I made because my brain has to be right. So my brain starts finding these things to, to make that an okay decision when it's just not. So as a negotiator, one thing I did with them anytime I got on the phone with them is they were not happy to be talking to me like they're they see the police outside. They're stuck inside. Maybe they were committing a crime. Maybe they're suicidal. Maybe they had just abused a spouse and we came to arrest them and they just locked the door, said, you're not coming in. Whatever it is, they're having a really bad day and they're highly stressed. And so they yell at me. They threaten me. They threaten my family. They cuss at me. I let them do that because what we need to understand is in everybody's brain, and this is the most powerful concept I ever learned as a hostage negotiator, in everybody's brain is a teeter-totter. You may call it a seesaw where you live. Think the playground piece of equipment with a kid on each side of the board, and they're just teeter-tottering back and forth. Inside everybody's brain is a teeter-totter. On one side of that teeter-totter is emotion, and on the other side of that teeter-totter is logic and reason. So think about the teeter-totter. If the emotion side comes up, if the emotion is high, logic and reason is low every time. So while they're yelling at me and threatening me in the beginning, they have no logic and reason capabilities at this point. They're too stressed. The emotions are too high. If I let them yell at me, if I don't yell back, if I just take the abuse and let them vent that emotion starts coming down naturally because it's exhausting to stay highly emotional for long. So as they vent to me, a safe person, they're not abusing the hostages, they're yelling at me, that it, logic and reason starts to come up. And then they start to realize, you know what, as bad as things are, they could get worse. And maybe this guy can help me keep them from getting worse. I've just got to wait them out while they process that high emotion and let logic and reason come back up. Now, in a family situation, a lot of times we don't think about this teeter-totter. Our spouse comes in from a day at work, they're super stressed, they're super angry about something, and they're ranting about work, and we spit out immediately a very logical solution to their problem, and they blow right past it. Because they couldn't physiologically process it at the time, an hour later, they may come to us with that very same solution and claim it as their own because their subconscious brain heard it, just couldn't process it. And when the emotion comes down enough for logic and reason to kick back in, then they'll start looking for solutions. So whenever I negotiated with somebody, I knew the first hour or so was not going to be pleasant. But then we would start having real conversations about what caused their problem. It's not we're, we were robbing a bank and we got caught. Why, why are we here? What's going on? Well, I can't provide for my kids anymore or my wife's getting ready to leave me or whatever. Now we're looking at real emotional situations that create high stress. And if we can talk about how if we continue down this pathway and make more poor decisions, how are our kids going to see that? How is our spouse going to see it? All these important people that they've talked to me about how are they going to view us if we continue down this pathway? So every negotiation was about getting the emotion to come down, establishing rapport with them, and then finding a solution that gets them out safely, gets my officers home safely, and anybody who's in there with them safe. And a lot of that was dealing with the high emotions first before we start trying to solve the problem. And how did you carry this? Because this, of course, is a very, very stressful and difficult, I, I can imagine, position to be in. How did you carry all of that? That's a great question. And that's something I wish more people did. After every high stress event, we did what we called a debrief. That's why the last section of my book is called the debrief. And the debrief was... What worked? What didn't? What would we do differently next time? What would we keep the same? We're just kind of analyzing the whole situation start to finish because we've made some mistakes along the way. And we stumbled into some things that actually ended up working. 
it's very much a dance. It's very much an art, this whole conversation negotiation thing. It's not a science. And so we're trying, we have these tactics that we try to make it successful, but sometimes something just comes out of left field we weren't expecting and it works. And so we did the debrief. We checked on everybody. We would check on people the next day. How are things going? If we saw it situations where negotiators or SWAT team members were showing signs of high stress, we had counselors in place that we would refer these people to because it's a lot. I tell police officers all the time, you have to have an outlet for this. You can't go and do what we do and then put the lid on the box at the end of the day, put it on the shelf and go back home and be the wife or the dad or the husband or whatever. You have to kind of unpack this when you get home. And it doesn't have to be with a spouse. It could be with a good friend. It could be with a counselor. There's a lot of people you can unpack this with because we see people at their worst and that's stressful. And that if we think we put the lid on that box at the end of the day, put it on the shelf in our brains and it doesn't affect the rest of our lives, we're fooling ourselves because our families get the leftovers because we've given everything at work. Where if we come home and unpack that with a safe person, could be a spouse, could be a close friend, could be whatever on these high stress days, you have to get it out. Otherwise, it poisons the rest of your life very quickly. That is very good advice. And um, it has a lot of wisdom in it because you do need to unpack this highly stressful, but also this heaviness that you get from people because you're carrying a certain type of energy from them. And you can't keep overloading yourself with all of this. And that's why I was curious as to how you being in the position that you're in, Scott, are able to actually have a breathing space and a space to allow, in effect, your whole being to rest. Mm -hmm. It's funny you mentioned that, Mimi, because that is what the podcast I just recorded today that's going to drop next week. That's what that episode is about. I I sit on my front porch at my house and I read a book sometimes in the afternoon. I sit quietly waiting for neighbors to walk by that I can wave to. I just sit. That's a place where no work is done. I don't work on the front porch. I don't try to think about work. I just read. I talk to my wife. I talk to my friends. There's two chairs out there. They're super comfortable. And I invite people over for a drink, whatever drink they need. I'm in Kentucky, so we can have beer, we can have bourbon, we can have sweet tea. Whatever your day needs, we will sit there and we'll have a drink and we'll either talk about it or we won't. We may just sit there in a comfortable silence. We may talk about everything other than that thing. Because I feel like we all need a space where we don't have an agenda. We don't have time. We just are together. And most days, it's my wife sitting next to me. But some days it's one of my daughters. They're 18 and 22 now. It, recently, it's been my son-in-law or my daughter, my youngest daughter's boyfriend. They'll occupy the other chair and we'll just sit there and we'll laugh and we'll share stories. To me, that's a space where there's no agenda. There's no judgment. It's just hanging out, talking if we need to or not. I'm okay with it. And that space brings me a lot of comfort, a lot of solace. Uh, And it's just a cool place to be. I love that idea. And I think it's so needed in all of our lives, that sort of rocking chair on the porch. um, I can just imagine it. And what a beautiful image that is to have that space, I suppose, to allow oneself to recuperate after life has happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I sometimes I'm out there thinking about nothing and a solution to a problem comes that I've been thinking about for months. And it was it is because I wasn't thinking about it. You know, when I'm in my office here at the house, because I work from home these days, when I'm in my office, I can't solve all the problems. 
But when I get out and unplug in a space where I'm no longer thinking about those problems, sometimes the solution just comes because I've tapped into a deeper part of my brain without even meaning to. And it just shows up. I always call it the three-day rest. I have this little theory that if I have a problem, it's so difficult sometimes um, not to think about it. But I have this little method of not thinking about it for three days. And the same as yourself, Scott, after three days, it's a completely different outlook. And you would never have come to that conclusion had you not given yourself that time away from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I'm a big fan, Mimi, of of timeouts, as we call them. I, when I was raising my girls, sometimes I would have to give them a timeout. When I was a kid, a timeout being sent to your room, that kind of stuff, was a horrible punishment for me as a kid because in my room, there were no other people. And I'm a people person. I like to be around people. And I'm old enough that I didn't have a TV. I didn't have a cell phone. They didn't exist. My room was just basically a prison with a bed in it right? as far as I was concerned as a kid. And I thought it was a horrible punishment. As an adult, I realized the times I sent my daughters to their room for a timeout was more for my benefit than theirs because they were highly emotional. I was highly emotional. Things were getting out of control. And I'm like, just go to your room for like five minutes. And most of those timeouts would end with me going in there and saying, you know what? I didn't handle that very well. And I'm sorry. And I'm going to try better next time. And I do that at work too. Sometimes I come out of a meeting super stressed and somebody who is in that meeting comes up to me and says, what are we going to do about this? And I'll say, listen, I want to talk to you about this. Give me five minutes. And in that five minutes, I may go for a walk. I may listen to some music. I might read a book for five minutes. I'm going to do something to give myself a time out so that my teeter-totter can start to stabilize again so that the emotion can come down logic and reason can come back up and we can have a much more productive conversation. So I'm a big fan of timeouts. Now that doesn't mean we stop the conversation never to pick it up again. We have to restart these difficult conversations, but it doesn't have to be immediately. You can tell somebody, listen, I want to find this solution. Can we talk on this first thing in the morning? Do you have anything on your calendar in the morning that we could sit and talk? Because I want to solve this. And then once I've gotten home and unplugged, sat on my porch for a little bit, the emotions start to stabilize. The next morning after a good night's rest, I'm fresh. My brain isn't cluttered. And we'll find a much better solution than we would have at close of business the day before when we were both super stressed. It's a good idea because sometimes you want to um, demand in a way, from the other person, that they have to resolve it. You have to resolve it now. And pretty much nothing really gets resolved. So the idea to rest and to look at it with a clear head is excellent advice, I think, in any situation that's taught like that. Yeah, it's it's worked for me when I'm wise enough to do that. There are times that sadly I dig in and I have the the argument that I didn't have to have because I'm not thinking clearly under stress. But the times that I've been able to say, listen, I, it's not you. I'm super stressed right now. Give me 15 minutes or give me till tomorrow. Those have been much better conversations. For sure. I can talk from experience as well. Absolutely the truth. Absolutely. Now, Scott, the art of conversation, would you say that was the same as, I suppose, what do you do? It's about communication. Is there a secret behind it? Is it just that some people have that charm, that eloquence to be excellent at communicating and talking? Or is it some, is it a certain, I don't know, in a way I think of it as a certain sort of je ne sais quoi, something that can't be explained. 
I will tell you this. In my experience, the people who are the best communicators are actually the best listeners. I tell people all the time, and all of my time as a negotiator, I never talked somebody into coming out of wherever they were. I listened people in to coming out from where they were. If you are talking with a family member or a coworker or something, the more you can listen to them, the more you can actually serve them, the more you can find what's going on. And I think where some people miss the boat when it comes to communication is they latch on to the first sentence or two that somebody says, and then they start planning their rebuttal. And they don't listen while somebody completes a thought or they don't give them a chance to finish their thought. And if you're like me, if you're an external processor, the first few sentences out of your mouth are not the problem. That's just getting the ball rolling. That's just getting the wheels turning. If you'll listen until somebody is finished speaking and then ask them better questions, when they're done speaking, you say, wow, why do you think that is? You know, why do you think that frustrated you? Why do you think that worked out the way it is? When you start asking why questions, you'll drill into a deeper level and a deeper need here. And a lot of times you can get these conversations fairly vulnerable, fairly quickly. And you have to be very careful with that because this can be effective communication can be manipulative. You can use it for evil purposes. But I've never met a superpower that can't be used for evil. When I was hired on at the police department, they issued me a gun. I used that gun to protect myself and other people. Thankfully, I never had to fire it in, my, in the course of my duties. But that gun could have been used for evil. It's a tool. And effective communication is a tool that can be used to help a lot of people. But it can also be used to manipulate people when you're dealing with narcissism and things like that. So it is a skill that can be learned, but it's also a skill that can be abused. That's a very good point because when people talk, it's a very powerful tool, like you say, and words are very powerful. I think we don't realize that sometimes and we don't actually fully understand how powerful words are and what we say has an effect, a huge effect on people. What we say has a huge effect, Mimi, but also what we don't say has a huge effect. I, yes. I tell people all the time, I, I attend a lot of conferences. I'm the guy yes. that's always connecting with people. And I meet people that come to me for coaching and they say, I'm not good at small talk. I don't know what to say. I'm like, who says you have to say anything? Ask them questions. What do you do? Tell me about your family. Where do you live? And even if you only have five minutes to talk and they spent four and a half minutes talking about themselves, they'll go back to their seat after that break thinking, I really liked that person. They really were a nice person. And all they did was talk about themselves the whole time because that's our favorite thing to do is talk about ourselves. I'm an expert on me, right? And if you ask me good questions, they get me talking about me and you've actually listened to those responses. You and I are going to connect on a very deep level because you have allowed me to speak on something I'm an expert on and you suspended judgment and you just kept me talking. So you don't have to be great at small talk. You have to ask good questions. That's all. I love it. I love it. And what a super, super quality you have, really, that you are able to speak so eloquently about all of this. And there's so much to learn. Now, do you offer courses in this, Scott? Or just tell us about what you do, what you offer to people, for the people out there who may want to contact you. Yeah, for sure. What the, the main thing that I do, the thing that I love the most, the times I feel most alive is when I am on a stage or in a boardroom 
leading a discussion, having a conversation with people. And I do a lot of that. And sometimes those organizations will keep me on as a consultant, meaning I'm sitting in virtually on a meeting at least once a month. I'm I'm sending them information. If they have to have a difficult conversation with an employee or a team member, they can call me up and we can talk about how we might frame up this conversation. I just consult with them. I I don't send out press releases for them. I did that for the police department, but I don't know their business like they do. But I will read any press release they want to send to me before they send it out. I will follow 100% of their social media channels and get alerts as to when they post so that when I read it outside of the organization, in today's current climate, how does that come across to me? And if it's fine, no problem. If it strikes a weird nerve, I'll call them up. I'll be like, hey, this is how I just read that thing. And they're like, oh, that's not how we meant it at all. And it gives them a chance to edit the content before it's seen by a lot of people. So I just serve as a consultant for a lot of these organizations. I do one-on-one coaching, but honestly, I much prefer a mastermind environment, which I facilitate a mastermind with people who want to improve their communication. Because I feel like one-on-one, there's some value. But if you get a group of people together who are pursuing the same thing, it's just a game changer. You, you It's a force multiplier. It, I, I know a lot on this subject, but there's a lot of people who know things I don't know. And so when I can get those people in a room and work with them, we just become better together than any one of us is on our own. So I, I speak a lot. I consult with people. I coach people. I facilitate masterminds. That's kind of my business today in a nutshell. And I write when I have the time. And this new book that is coming out uh, in April, is it? Yes. Okay. And But people can pre-order now. Absolutely. They can pre-order wherever they're buying books. If they're international, Amazon might be the best place for that because the publisher is still working on international issues with the publishing today. But Amazon has it pre-listed. They can go to silencekillsbook.com and watch a like a two-minute promo video that's me and people who have read the book talking about the impact that it can have if it's used in, in the organization. So that's where they can go to find out all the details about the book. Uh, if you purchase the book, you can get a free downloadable discussion guide where every question or every chapter has questions attached to it that you could use it for an office book study. You could just use those questions in your own personal journal to to take it to the next level. So we start internalizing some of these things. That's that's the, my only issue with being a professional speaker is I tell people it's like building sandcastles. When I get done with a presentation, I stand back, I look at the audience, I have conversations with them. I'm like. That was amazing. That turned out beautifully. But you know what's going to happen tonight when they sleep? The tide's going to start coming in and it's going to start washing away some of the things that we built. And so the book is a way for them to keep on their shelf at home the tactics that they learned when I was at their organization. Because as the waves come and wash them away, sometimes we just pull the book down and say, well, what do we do in this situation? And the book is there to remind them of what we talked about and take it to a deeper level. Because when I do these presentations, they're about 90 minutes long. And the book just allows me to expand in ways I wasn't able to expand on the stage. And there there are practical tips in the book. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's the book talks about things that get in the way of effective communication, stress, fear, all of those things, what to do to, to work your way around those. The, the book talks about the best ways to communicate, you know, face-to-face whenever you can. If you can't get face-to-face, let's look at the issues with video. If there's no video and we're audio only, an old-school phone call, what are some issues there? Or we can't get on the phone, but we text each other. And what's lost in the translation of the texting? So, you know, social media, all of that stuff is covered in the book with the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, all of these things have positives. All of these things have negatives. So we have to understand which one might be the best to use in our particular situation. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. I'm definitely going to get it because it's a fascinating subject. And I think we all need to be able to learn a little bit more, at least, even for our own lives, of how to communicate properly. And I think it's so important. Now, 
as we end, Scott, where else can people get hold of you and find out about your work? The main hub, all of my activities are on speakingofharvey.com. That's the name of my podcast, the name of my company. That's everything is on speakingofharvey.com. That's where all of my social media channels are. I'm on almost all of them because that's what I talk to teenagers about in the schools is about Mm -hmm. managing the technology and not doing dumb stuff online and all of that stuff. So I'm on almost all of the social media channels, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of the ones that people are using. So I invite you to come along for the ride. I'm super extroverted. I'm probably oversharing most days what's going on in my life, but that's how I build rapport with the people that I serve. And that's how I get people to like, know, and trust me because honestly, I'm a fairly open book. I will share my mistakes just as much as I will share my successes. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I have learned quite a few things speaking to you. That's awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. It's You're very, very welcome. And always, you know, it's an open invitation. Please do come back again, maybe after your book is out and um, you've done lots of more interesting things. Please come again and join me. Sounds good. Thank you. Oh, well, look after yourself and um, I wish you lots of success with the book. Thank you very much. All right, then. Take care. Scott Harvey. What an interesting talk, really. So many wonderful guests share their fantastic knowledge. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. I wish you beautiful moments and wonderful days. Until next time, look after yourselves and lots and lots of love. Thank you for listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life. Brought to you by your host, Mimi Novik. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and see you in the next episode. For more information about Mimi Novik and her books, music and inspirational work, take a look at her website, www.miminovik.co.uk.